Those of y'all who uh, maybe don't know me, maybe you do know me, I'm that guy that's the children's minister's husband. <laughs> Oftentimes hear that a lot of times, you know, you're that coach that's married to the children's minister. No, that children's minister is married to the coach. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you know, I, I, my name is Daniel Wright. Um, lived here in uh, Gray going on nine years now, coached for 15 years, um, teaching for 12 years. I started out coaching in college, coaching in college at, uh, at a high school. Very uh, blessed. I coached at my parents' high schools. So that was very blessed, blessing for me to be able to say that I could, that I could do that. Um, when I told Pastor Randy back in December uh, that God had been leading me into uh, to the ministry, we were right here on this uh, pew right here where Miss Kristen Carr and her family are, and he fainted. <laughs> I don't know if he fainted because he thought I might be taking Laura away or not, but I think it was more because uh, if I did take Laura away, I have to go. I can't take Laura away from the church. But um, he was, uh, he's been a great mentor um, for me. And I am beginning my seminary experience. I have started a seminary in January. I have completed some courses. Hallelujah. I made some A's. So I do remember how to write papers again. So we are uh, excited about this opportunity um, that I have in, uh, in my personal uh, walk with God. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. We're going to start in 1 Kings, chapter 19. We're going to pick up the story in verse number 9. It says, Then he came to a cave. And lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord. The God of hosts for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. If you skip down to verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, with an S, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him. And he with the twelfth, 
And Elijah passed over to, to him and threw his mantle on him. He left and the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to see you move this morning. Move in our hearts. Move in our midst. Pray that the words are your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Burn the Ships. In 1519, a Spanish conquistador named Hernan Cortez set sail for Mexico with an entourage of 13 horses, 110 sailors, 553 soldiers, all on 11 ships. The indigenous population that inhabited uh, the area upon his arrival was 5 million people. From a mathematical standpoint, Cortez and his followers were outnumbered by a ratio of 7,541 to 1. Previous expeditions had failed, but what Cortez is reported to have done after landing is a tale of epic proportions. With three bold words, the course of history in the Western Hemisphere changed dramatically. He issued an order that turned his mission into an all-or-nothing proposition. And the three words that he uttered, burn the ships. As his crew watched their fleet of ships burn and sink, they came to the realization there was no turning back. There was no going back. Cortez's words and his actions created in his men a mindset that retreat was not an option. They were either going home in the Aztec ships or they were not going home at all. You know, today as we examine this passage here in 1 Kings, we're going to look at two Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Now, I'm sure many of us, we've heard the, the phrase, burning the bridges. It's actually a military term that originated with the Roman Empire. When the Roman armies would cross over bridges to areas they were going to conquer, they would burn the bridges in order to keep their men from retreating and to let them know that retreating was not an option. There are moments in life when we simply need to burn the ships and move forward. We do this by making a defining decision that will eliminate any option of sailing back to the old world that we left behind. Some of the ships that we may be burned would be past failures, maybe even past successes. We burn ships called bad habits or even regrets. We can burn ships called alcohol, pornography, depression, disgruntledness, marital struggles, even divorce. We even burn ships called identity or our old way of life. And I believe one of the problems in the church today is too many people are struggling with their identity in Christ. And I'm here to tell you, if we accept Christ as our Savior, we believe in Christ as the Son of the living God, we will be saved. We have a new identity in Christ called child of God. 
So as we examine God's word this morning, I want us to walk away with three points this morning. The first point is this. God reminds and re-energizes a weary warrior. Now, Elijah is a very interesting and colorful character in the Bible. James 5.17 says that he was a man with a nature like ours. Some translations say passions like ours. In other words, Elijah's just like us. He endures the same physical, spiritual, emotional issues that we suffer from today. When we're introduced to Elijah here in the, in the text, previously in the text, excuse me, he was standing before King Ahab prophesizing God's coming judgment onto the nation because the nation of Israel, once again, in their wickedness, had turned to false idols, God was going to withhold the reins for three years. Now the Bible says in Kings, in 1 Kings 16.30, that King Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anyone before him. That's a very interesting thing. He did more evil than anybody in the, in the eyes of the Lord that came before him. He was also married to a vile pagan woman named Jezebel. They worshipped these false gods. They even built idols to these false gods. They turned many of God's people away from God and to these false idols. They persecuted the Israelites for worshipping God and for not worshipping these false gods. There was this great confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. In which the prophets of Baal, they both would set up sacrifices and call on their God to rain down fire. Well, the Baal prophets, theirs didn't work. Elijah standing there mocking them, making fun of them. You want me to dance for you? Maybe they'll call on rain. Elijah's turn comes up and he earnestly calls on God to bring down the fire, burn up the sacrifice. And once again, God showed his presence that he is the almighty, all-powerful, one true God. All the Baal prophets were then rounded up and killed. Elijah experienced a great victory and God brought the rains. But then something happens to Elijah. His mindset, his heart changes after experiencing this great victory. He enters into a dark period where his faith wavers. He goes through depression. Jezebel, hearing the news that Elijah, what Elijah had done, she puts out a death warrant on Elijah. She wants him dead. She vows to have him killed. Elijah runs trembling in fear, throws himself a pity party to get away from Elijah. How amazing that Elijah could stand up to 850 prophets and call on the name of God, but yet he runs trembling in fear from a woman. It could be said that behind every good man is an even better woman. Amen. <laughs> In this case, behind an evil man stood an even more evil woman pulling the strings. He, she, she was a very headstrong, self-willed, domineering woman 
and with a morally weakening husband, she had no problem getting her way. Apparently, she was able to wield such incredible power. Some, some women, I guess, have the ability to wield such incredible power. There was this elderly woman that came home from church one Sunday night, and uh, she uh, caught this intruder, this burglar, in the act of robbing her of her uh, possessions. And she shouted out, Stop! Acts 2.38. The burglar just stopped in his tracks. She calmly picked up the phone, called 911, called the police. The police came, handcuffed the, uh, the, the would-be robber, and the, the police officer said, you know, why'd you stop in your tracks? You know, all she did was yell scripture to you. He said, scripture? She said she had an axe in 238. <laughs> so we see Elijah is lamenting over his circumstances. He seems to be on this emotional roller coaster. And at times, we're on these same emotional roller coasters. Life is going good. We're being blessed by God. My finances are in order. My spiritual life is going great. My marriage is great. Everything is great. And then something happens, and our faith wavers. We get on this emotional roller coaster. Or better yet, we spend our time working hard for the Lord like Elijah was doing. We don't see the results that we want to see. We start to feel spiritually empty, burned out, even depressed. But the Bible says in Psalm 62.1, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Jesus says in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weary. I will give you rest. Elijah was more focused on his present circumstances instead of focusing on the God who is in control of the circumstances. Moses prayed a similar prayer to the Israel, with the Israelites. They had complained and complained and complained about being brought out of Egypt and out here starving and hungry and wandering around aimlessly, it appeared. And Moses called on God to just say, take my life. I'm tired of doing this. Just take my life. Elijah did the same thing. He said, just take my life. When he fled Jezebel, he went south to the wilderness of Judah, found a juniper tree, camped out under the juniper tree and said, Lord, take my life. It is enough. But God stepped in. He provided Elijah with the food and the spiritual quickening that he would need for his for his long travel to the Mount of Horeb, where he would be instructed to listen to God. And there in verses 11 through 18, we see God meeting with Elijah right there. But notice, there was this great wind. Then there was this earthquake. Then a fire. But God was not in any of those things. Then came the steel gentle whisper that Elijah heard and understood what God would have him to do. You see, Elijah was kind of used to seeing God work in the big way. Rain, fire down from Mount Carmel, the big, miraculous way. If we're not careful, we can allow all the noise and the commotion of this world to drown out the steady, gentle voice of God calling us to himself. God was showing Elisha that I'm not always going to work in the big things. 
the big miraculous things or the noisy things like I did at Mount Carmel. But the lasting spiritual work is accomplished by God's word quietly working in the hearts of his people. But in his pride, Elijah complained. He complained that he was the only faithful follower. We complained, I'm the only one following you, God. Where are you at in our midst? When we look around in our culture today, gay marriage, abortion, our culture, where are you at, God? But God, I believe, is reminding us like he reminded Elijah, get back to work. Get back to work. I'm in control. I've got everything under control. You get back to work and follow my command. So Elijah listens to God's command and he goes and he anoints a new king over Israel and he anoints his successor. God gives Elijah a new opportunity to serve him and to magnify his name. So we see how God reminds and re-energizes this weary warrior. And I want you to notice the second point. God uniquely and personally calls a working warrior. In verse 19, let's read it again. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. So when we're introduced to Elisha with an S, the first thing we notice is he's working. He's a plowman. He's busy plowing with the oxen, the rugged ground. See, Elijah was raised in this region of, of Israel known as Abel Mehola. It's the breadbasket of the Jordan River Valley. And as we're introduced to Elijah, it appears that he is a very profitable farmer. He comes from a very profitable family operation. He is plowing with the 12th yoke of oxen. Most of the family farms had one yoke of oxen, very limited farmlands. So for Elisha and his family to have 12 yoke of oxen and for him to be plowing with the 12th yoke of oxen and to have the farmlands to go with it shows that he is very wealthy. But I want you to notice in verse 19 that he is steadily working the field, himself driving that 12th pair. He's obviously not lazy. You know, farmers are very special people, I think. They're at the mercy of so many variables. You know, my father, his family, his siblings grew up in a small farming town in southeast Georgia, a no-nothing town called Portal. It's grown a little bit now. But he all, we always kind of joke with him about those, those experiences, and he always talks about how they did nothing easy. They, they always did things hard, the hard way, hard work. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all toil there is profit. Mere talk leads to poverty. Too many of us, sometimes we talk about what we want to do for the Lord, and we don't go out and do for the Lord. Colossians 3 22 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working for the Lord, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. So Elijah's not standing around just talking. He is working. It's the same command that Jesus gives to his disciples. He says, go 
and make disciples of the nation. Not stand around and talk about making disciples of the nations. Go and make disciples of the nations. Then Elisha throws his mantle onto Elisha. This mantle was likely made of some type of an animal skin. It was a garment of distinction, a garment of uh, a position worn by kings and prophets. By throwing this mantle onto Elisha, it was the symbolic act of Elisha passing his ministry on to Elisha. It was the unique and personal calling of Elisha. He didn't have to ask what was going on. He knew by the action of throwing this mantle on him that he was now God's sovereign choice. God's great story is filled with countless people who he calls in unique and personal ways to go and burn the ships of their past to take action that will magnify his name. God called Abram to burn the ships of his past and to pack up and to go to a new and distant country. I will establish a new covenant with you. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said, go and free my people. God anointed the shepherd boy David to be his new king over Israel, and he empowered him to slay the giant Goliath. Isaiah was taken to the very throne room of the pre-incarnate Christ. He was cleansed by a coal of fire, preparing him to proclaim God's judgment on Israel. Peter was doing the work he did every day as a fisherman when the Son of God came to him and said, Put down your fishing nets. I will make you fishers of men. Paul on the Damascus Road going to persecute more Christians was blinded by the bright light of God saying, I will use you as my new instrument. Billy Graham, one of the greatest evangelists ever in the world. Millions of people have heard him preach the word of God through TV and through his huge crusades and revivals. He was uniquely and personally called time and time and time again. God has used people in unimaginable ways to spread the gospel, to bring glory to his name. He uniquely sent his son, Jesus Christ, to born of a virgin birth, dying of a vicarious death, living a sinless, spotless life, and resurrecting from the dead so you and I can have eternal life. He uniquely calls people in eternal ways, in unimaginable ways. If we look at the names of Elisha and Elijah and Elisha, it's foretold in their names. Elijah means Yahweh is God. That was his ministry. His ministry was to show people God, that there was a God, a true God. Elisha's name means God is salvation. That was his calling to show people that God saves. So we see God uniquely and personally calls each of us in a unique way. Last point I want to bring to you is this. God's anointed warrior answers the call with an emphatic statement of faith. If you look again in the scripture, verse 20 and 21, it says he left the oxen and ran, he ran after Elijah. 
And he said, please let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him. He took the pair of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen, gave it to the people. They ate. Then he arose and followed Elisha and ministered to him. You see, Elisha knew what the calling was when the mantle was thrown on him. He didn't have to ask. He didn't have to guess. He knew what it was. Now, Elijah had a decision to make. Do I go back to my same old comfort? Farming, profitable business, where everything is fine and easy other than working the farm. Or do I pick up this mantle and go and follow Elisha no matter where it may go, no matter what it may cost me? He had a decision to make. And as we see, Elisha made the decision. He turned his oxen and his plowing equipment into kindling and barbecue. This was his emphatic statement of faith that I am burning the plowing equipment, I am burning the ships of my past, and I will go and follow you. Now, maybe he didn't have to burn the plowing equipment. He probably could have just left it, tied it up, and just went on with his new mentor now, Elijah. But to start a new chapter in our life, and in anything, you have to end an old chapter. You typically can do this with a, with a period that gets the job done. But if you want to be more emphatic, you use an exclamation point. And that's what Elisha did. He didn't have to burn the plowing equipment, but he decided to burn the plowing equipment because that was his statement of faith. It was his all-in moment. He was making the decision that I am not going back to my old farming way of life. I am pressing on forward to this new call that you would have me to do. He was going to take up the mantle of Elisha, go and proclaim the word of God no matter where it took him and cost him. It was his statement of faith. It's a defining decision accompanied by dramatic action that symbolizes our absolute commitment to Christ and his call. That was the statement of faith that Elijah was making by burning the ships of his past. And I believe there are times in your life and in my life when we simply just need to throw down the gauntlet we need to make a profound statement of faith that shows our absolute commitment to Christ the, the, the tax collector Zacchaeus came to Christ he burned the ships of his past by helping the poor giving his possessions to the poor and by paying back anybody he defrauded four times the prostitute burned the ships to her past by anointing Jesus with every last drop of the perfume that she had. The magicians at Ephesus burned their scrolls. The Bible says an act was worth 50,000 pieces of silver, the equipment of nearly $3 million. They burned all those magic scrolls, and a great revival broke out in Ephesus. You see... A lot of times as humans, we're really, really smart. 
If there's anything that's built in us, it's our desire to survive. We need hope. We need an alternative. We need a way out if all else fails. We need a plan B. Maybe even need a lifeboat. What we really need is a bonfire and a full court press. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead. My favorite part is I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I love that phrase, pressing on. Reminds me of my days coaching basketball, girls basketball, and I promise you, girls basketball can be rough. But I, rem- I love the full court press. I love taking the game to the opponent, not sitting back and playing prevent. You know, as a football coach, I always hated the prevent defense because there's one thing I've learned, a prevent defense prevents you from winning. And I wonder at times is as the church, we're playing it safe. We're playing, we're dropping back into a prevent defense, just continuing to do what we've always done, what is comfortable. Maybe because we are growing a little bit. We don't want to rock the boat and change things up too much. Maybe God's calling us to a full court press to have the vision and the boldness to see God move in such unimaginable and incredible ways we never thought possible. Maybe in our marriage we're playing prevent defense in our marriage and with raising our children, spiritual growth, our relationships. Maybe we're playing it safe. Now, there are times when I played the full court press that I gave up some buckets. The other team broke the press and gave up a few buckets. But that didn't deter me to do in my mind what I'm trained to do. And you know what? In our spiritual life, the devil's going to get his licks in every once in a while. But too often we live defeated when God has already won the victory for us. As a coach, I would love to know every Friday night the the victory is secure. We're going to win no matter what. We're going to win. I would have loved to know that going in. With Christ, our victory is already secured. It's already guaranteed. The question is, do we live victoriously or are we playing safe, playing prevent defense when God could be calling us to a full court press? So as I close this morning, I want to ask you, what are your ships? What are my ships? Those ships are the things that own you. They're the things that keep you from experiencing the great victory in Christ. Stop regretting the past and learn from it. Let go of the guilt and lean on God's grace. Quit beating yourself up over past mistakes and allow the Holy Spirit to heal your heart. God wants to reconcile your life by redeeming it. You see, God is in the recycling business. He makes recycled goods out of wasted lives. When we have the courage to burn the ships, we discover that God will part the river. I challenge you, make a statement of faith. 
Burn those ships of the past that are scuttling your relationships, your finances, your health, your marriage, but more importantly, keeping you from experiencing the great victory with God. If we burn the ships, we establish a mindset that is God or nothing. And I promise you, when you choose God, He will move. Now, that's hard to do, I know, at times. But I promise you, with God's strength, we can burn those ships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, last piece of advice I asked from Pastor Randy was he said, preach your heart out and go home dead tired. Well, I'm going home sweating bullets and I feel like I preached my heart out because it's about to jump out of my chest. But we want to see you move. We want to see you move in ways we never thought imaginable for us to just burn the ships of the past and to watch you move. Thank you. Amen.